You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 3. And it would be also helpful if you would stick a finger in or a card in or something to mark James chapter 1. So 1 John 3 and James 1 is where we are going to be today. Okay, so uh, let me just take one step back and kind of put this in the broad context of where we are right now. Um, we just started a set of sermons last week called Gospel Doctrine and Gospel Culture. And let me start again with this quote from J.I. Packer as he addresses the need for this sort of a thing. This is how he goes about saying it. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, It seems beyond question that we believers do not think often enough or hard enough about the culture of our congregations the culture of our churches. He goes on to say, culture, a word borrowed from sociology, means the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions held in common. A church's culture, okay, so the culture of our place, kind of our, our normal, kind of the, the, the way people behave most of the time. That's culture around here. He says a church's culture should be orthopraxy. That's our behavior, expressing orthodoxy, that's our doctrine, that our culture should be made up of our doctrine. Our doctrine should flow out into a culture that adorns and beautifies the doctrine, he's saying. It should look like self-giving love for others that in turn reflects the sacrificial love for us of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So we're going to take some time to think about, does our culture our normal way of operating at our church, the normal way you operate, that I operate, does our culture express our doctrine? Okay, this is what we're taking time to consider. So what is gospel doctrine? In short, gospel doctrine is this, that God is absolutely and all-out holy, and that we, in, in response to this absolutely holy God, have rebelled against God. We threw the first punch. We fired the first shot at God. We rebelled. We sinned against God. But rather than crushing us in our sin... God sent his son to rescue and redeem us with his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, so that now all of, the, all of us, you and I, who come to God with the empty hands of faith, not bringing anything, knowing that we have earned nothing but wrath from God, when we come with the empty hands of faith that we are reconciled to God, brought into the family of God, the Spirit of God is imparted to us and we're commissioned as missionaries. This is gospel doctrine. Now, here's the thing about gospel doctrine. That doctrine should be leading to a, a particular culture. See, the gospel doctrine should create a, a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace should create a culture of grace in a place. The gospel doctrine, think about what gospel doctrine is. We said it this way last week. Gospel doctrine is unspeakably great things happen to unspeakably bad people. That is gospel doctrine. If, if you're in Christ, that is your story unspeakably great things have happened to you, an unspeakably bad person. And that should be creating a culture where unspeakably great things are happening to unspeakably bad people. It should be creating a culture where these things are happening. So this, is, this is the gospel culture that we're moving for and, and going toward. Now this is the warning and this is the problem in all of this. Is It's very possible for a person... And because it's possible for a person, it's very possible and even likely for a church to hold on to gospel doctrine all the while not having a gospel culture. It's very possible for us to love gospel doctrine, for us to cherish gospel doctrine, for us to preach it, to study it, to do all of that, all 
the while not having it. That is a very possible thing for you to do and, and for me to do. We looked at the church in Laodicea last week, the, the church addressed in Revelation chapter 3. And in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, there are seven churches addressed. And it's interesting that as Jesus is addressing those seven churches, he only addresses two of the seven on the level of doctrine. Five of the seven are addressed on the level of culture. They have the doctrine, but five of the seven don't have the culture. So when he comes to the church in Laodicea, he looks at them and says, I know your works. I know your culture. Your doctrine's great, but your culture is off. I've got a problem with your culture here. So that's a warning to us that we can be a church. It's very likely that we can be a church that loves our doctrine, all the while we don't have the culture that the doctrine should produce. That is very likely for us. We've got to take time to consider these things, to think about these things. And listen, this is a big deal. Last week we talked about Galatians chapter 2. This sort of a thing, our, our culture being an expression of our doctrine, was a very important thing to Paul. It was important enough for him that when he saw Peter out of step with the gospel, in other words, the culture around Peter was not reflective of the doctrine that Peter believed. So Peter had the doctrine, but he didn't have the culture. When Paul saw that, it was a big enough deal for Paul to confront that in Peter. For Paul to look at Peter and say, this is not okay. Your behavior does not express your doctrine. It's, it's not all right. Like we said it this way last week, that, that Paul knows this about our culture, about the, the culture of a congregation, uh, the culture of a church, that right doctrine plus wrong culture equals doctrinal denial. Paul knows that. And because Paul knows that, when the culture is wrong, he cannot just scrape that under the rug and let that go. When culture is wrong, he's got to address that. See, Paul knows that Peter in this moment is unsaying with his life what he is saying with his lips. And that's possible for all of us to do. It's possible for us as a church to unsay with the culture of our congregation what we are saying with our lips, our preaching, with the doctrine that we hold so dear. See, it's that big of a deal. If we want to preserve gospel doctrine, we've not only got to preserve the doctrine, we've got to preserve the culture, the culture, the, the set of behaviors and practices that the doctrine should be producing. And here's the great news about all of this. When the doctrine is clear and, and, the, and the culture is compelling and beautiful and adorning that doctrine, the church becomes a really powerful thing. And that's what we're going after. We want to be a church like that, that has doctrine in one hand and culture in the, in the other. And those two things are both beautiful and pure and good. So in light of that, here's what the next few months are going to look like for us. We're going to start taking various components of gospel doctrine and then start to, to ask the question, does our church, is it, you know, around our, our church family, is the culture that, that should be attached to this doctrine, is that culture being produced? So today we are going to look at the doctrine, the beautiful gospel doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption. So we're going to start with gospel doctrine. This is going to be 1 John chapter 3. Gospel doctrine. 1 John chapter 3 says this should be up on the screen for you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. See, notice, pay attention to what kind of love this is. Answer to this kind of love. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
So the first thing we're going to look at here is we've got to notice the kind of love this is. This, this is what John is pointing us to. He's wanting us to notice, to pay attention, to, to take note of the sort of love with which we have been loved by God. And here is the sort of love. That's the first half. Like there's this implication in the first little part of this verse. There's this question, well, what kind of love is this, John? What kind of love has God loved us with? The second half of the verse answers it. God has loved us with an adopting love. That's the sort of love. And John is saying, you need to pay attention to that. You need to see this. You need to marinate your soul in this. This is an adopting sort of a love. This is the way God has loved you. See, the way God has loved you is not just as a person he's kept at arm's length. God didn't love you in such a way where he would send his son just to pay for your sin and to keep you over there. See, the, the story of the gospel is not just that you're a rebel who fired the first shot at God, so God therefore sent his son to live perfectly in your place, to die on the cross for your sin, risen from the dead on the third day, so that your sin could be dealt with. That is a part of the good news of the gospel, but it's not the whole good news of the gospel. See, the good news of the gospel is even better than that. The good news of the gospel is that God has sent his son to live for you, to die for you, risen from the dead on the third day, not just to pay for your sin, not just to deal with your guilt before God, not just to deal with the shame of your sin, but God has done all of that so that you can now be reconciled to God, so that you can be brought into the family of God, so that God can look at you right now, if you're in Christ, listen to this, and look at you right now and say, you are my child. You're a son of mine. You are, you are a daughter of mine. That from this point forward, for all of eternity, if you're in Christ, you can always look up to me and call me this. You don't have to call me God anymore. You can call me this, Dad. That's what you can call me for the rest of eternity. See, that's the great news of the gospel. But let me say it this way. John, in this passage, is pointing us to the primary, the central thing every Christian has to come to grips with, the central thing that every Christian has to feel deep, deep, deep in their bones, that they are a child of God. He's pointing us to that. The, the most important thing for you to know as a Christian, that you can now, for the rest of all eternity, look to God and say to God, you are my father. You, you are my dad. Now listen to J.I. Packer describe the importance of this. This is one of the fundamental things that a Christian has to know about themselves. He says it this way. What is a Christian? He's answering that question. What is a Christian? Now how would you describe that? What is a Christian? There's a lot of ways you could go about that, but listen to how he describes it. He says the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest, the deepest, the best way to describe this, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one, listen to this, who has God as father. If, and listen to what he goes on to say. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, if you don't know how much they get of this thing, how well they understand Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his or her father. He goes on, if this is not the thought, the controlling metaphor, the controlling picture, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, his prayers, 
and his whole outlook on life, if it's not the lens through which we start to see everything else that we are God's child, he is our father, if it's not that, controlling our whole outlook on life, it means that this person does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. This is what makes Christianity unique in all the other religions of the world. This is what we get to call God, Father. He goes on to say this, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Your understanding, your getting of Christianity cannot be better than your grasp of this, that you really are, if you're in Christ, you really are God's child. God really does now relate to you like a a perfect father would to his son. This is the way, this is the sort of way our relationship now works with God. This is the kind of love. Now, I want us to take a second to consider the actions of the love. So this is what John is showing us, the central thing in the Christian life, that we are now God's child, that he is now our father. But I want you to consider now, what did it require, what did it cost God to do that? How did God make us sons and daughters? If this is the most important thing we can know about ourselves, that we are sons and daughters of God, he's our father, how did God go about doing that for us? How did this happen for us? And let me just give you three or four quick things here. Number one, when we're talking about God's adopting love, this is important for you to know, that that adoptive love was seriously planned. That this was not just a in-the-moment thing with God. That your adoption, you being brought into the family of God, was seriously planned. This is how Ephesians 1, uh, Paul, this is how he writes it there in Ephesians 1, uh, verse 4 and 5. He says it this way. Even as he, talking about God, even as God chose us in him, Before the foundation of the world, before there was such a thing as time, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. So before, before you were a glimmer in your parents' eyes, before your parents ever existed, before your grandparents ever existed, before your first sin. Before the foundation of the world, here's what this passage is telling us, Paul's telling us, that your adoption was planned. Before all of that, your adoption was planned. See, our adoption in Jesus is not the result of God's reactive love, but of God's initiating love. That we're rebels running from God, and God pursues us. He initiates, he tracks us down and saves us. It's that. It's the result of that sort of initiating love from God. It doesn't originate in how lovely you are. See, your adoption did not come about because God looked at you and thought, man, that's a cute one. That's not how his adoption of you worked. That that your adoption in Jesus, that, that adoption was set in motion not because of something in you, but because of something in God, namely his free and sovereign grace. Now, whenever you talk about stuff like this, people always want to fight. You just bring up the word predestination, people always want to fight about that. And so, listen, I mean, just get a sense of what Paul is doing in in Ephesians 1. See, Paul is not talking about this so that we will fight and have a bunch of conflict about it. He's talking about this so that you can be comforted. Now, hear that. He is bringing up that your adoption happened before the foundation of the world so that you this morning would be comforted. So that you would know this morning that your adoption was not by chance. That you would know that there was a moment when God looked at you and said, I want them. They're going to be mine. I love them. 
They're going to be mine forever. That person right there, they're going to be my son and daughter for all of eternity. See, Paul is telling us this so that you will know that when God looks at you, listen to this. God actually wants you. God is not a begrudging father to you. He doesn't just tolerate you. That God looks at you and he wants you. See, that's what it should be producing in us. Your adoption was seriously planned. Here's the second thing we know about our adoption, is that it rescues from a terrible situation. See, the Bible will oftentimes use the word saved to describe our adoption. Now think about what the word saved implies. It implies that you are in a very grave and dangerous situation. Else you wouldn't need saving, right? And this is what the Bible affirms. That apart from Jesus, you are in a very grave and dangerous situation. Ephesians 2 says that we are object of God's wrath. That is the sort of grave and dangerous situation that we're in apart from Jesus. We are objects of the wrath of God. Romans 2 says it this way. That apart from Jesus, we are storing up wrath before God. So every moment of sin, every moment of defiance, every moment of apathy toward God, every one of those moments of leaving something undone that we should be doing or doing something that we shouldn't be doing, every one of those moments, Romans 2 says, is accruing wrath before God. And and Romans is very clear that there will be a day where God's wrath, completely unrestrained, comes crashing down on our heads. That day is coming for every person apart from Jesus. But here is the good news of the gospel. God saves from that. He saves from that sort of a terrible situation. And he doesn't just save from things. He saves two things. So he saves you from that sort of a terrible outcome for all eternity. He saves from that and he saves to something beautiful and grand, namely himself. He saves you to his family. He rescues you from this, and he delivers you into this, his family. I I heard one of uh, a a pastor tell the story about a couple in his church who uh, were in the process of adopting. And they were to the final stages. They were really just waiting for the baby to be born. And on one night, they got the chilling call that they were not expecting and did not want. They got the call that this baby had some serious physical problems. And so they had that, literally that night to make the decision, are we going to adopt this baby or are we not going to adopt this baby? And they, uh, the couple went to sleep that night, and the lady has this dream. And in this dream, there's a whole stadium full of people. And out in the middle of this stadium are all of these little babies that, that are being placed for adoption. And they would hold these beautiful little babies up, and someone in the crowd would say, I want that one. Give, give me that one. And, and they, would, they would get that baby. They would have that you know, baby placed in adoption, and, and on they would go. Another lovely little baby would be held up. I want that when another person in the crowd would stay. And then all of a sudden, there was this one baby that wasn't so beautiful, that wasn't so lovely, that had all of these little problems with, with this one little baby in particular. And ironically, all of these prospective parents in this huge stadium, everyone went absolutely silent. No, no one in this moment is saying, I, I want that one. And then all of a sudden, it zooms in on this little baby, and this mom realizes, that's me. I'm the unlovely baby. I'm the baby that no one wants. And then all of a sudden, when all these prospective parents are silent, in her dream, Jesus raises up out of the crowd and says, I want that one. Give me the unlovely one. Welcome to the good news of the gospel. 
It's not because you're so lovely. It's something in the heart of God, free and sovereign grace that comes and rescues out of terrible situations. And then he looks at you, not just rescues you from all that, but calls you his own, gives you a new family in him. This is the good news of our adoption. Thirdly, God's adopting love gives us an incredibly bright future. Gives us an incredibly bright future. See, our adoption is both a present experience and a future promise. It's both a present experience and a future promise. The good news of adoption, the the good news that God has brought you into his family, is more than you've got a new family. It's also that you now have a future with God. And that future is incredibly bright. I, I love how one person sums up the gospel. He says it this way. We're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus, and anyone can get in on this. And listen, if you're not in on this incredibly bright future, we want you in on this this morning. We're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus, and anyone can get in on this. This is the doctrine of adoption. Not only that you have a new family, but you've got an incredibly bright future in Jesus. Galatians 4 talks about this in terms of you now have this inheritance with God. All of God's wealth, all of God's resources, all of the goodness in God is now going to be yours for all of eternity. You've got this inheritance in God. I I like how Romans 8 talks about it. Romans 8 calls us children of God. In other words, our adoption is done. We we are legally changed. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. But then it also says in Romans 8 that, that we are adopted, we are sons and daughters of God, but we're also awaiting our adoption. Now, isn't that interesting? So we are adopted, but we're awaiting our adoption. Now, what is Paul getting at? Here's what Paul is getting at in Romans 8. That, yes, it is a present experience. Your adoption, when you put your faith in Jesus, you come with the empty hands of faith. God saves and rescues you. But so much of what is coming in your salvation, so much of what is coming in your adoption is going to be a future experience. When, when God the Father sends our elder brother Jesus back to this earth, splitting the sky, emptying every little earthly grave, in that moment you're going to get a sense of the full and robust range of all that your adoption means. Think that so much of that lies in the future. So much so that in Romans 8, I think it's verse 18 that Paul says, there's going to be this moment in the future that's going to be so grand that when you just get a glimpse of it, one second of this, one millisecond of this in the future, it's going to make every hard thing that you're going through right now seem slight and momentary. It's going to make it seem not very weighty. It's going to make it seem insignificant for you. That's how good this moment in the future is going to be. I love how Samuel Rutherford, an old uh, Scottish preacher, how he tried to encourage his church family with this. Listen to how he said it. He said, do you feel like you've had a bad life? Anybody feel like that in here? That life has just been really hard? It just seems like every time you take a step forward, you take like three back. You just had a hard life. God is calling you to hard things that are just difficult to do. So do you ever feel like you have a bad life? It's just, it's just harder than you want it to be. Do you ever feel like you're grieving for the things that you seem to be losing? Do you feel like there's things in your life that you just lost, that there's a good chance you're never, ever going to get back in this life? Do you ever feel that way? He's, he goes on to say this, keep a record of all of them. Go ahead. Keep a bill of all of those things you, see, you, you, know, you feel like you've lost, all, all of those things that seem so bad to you. Keep a bill, and on that last day, go to your father and give him that bill and watch how he makes good on it. 
One instant of glory, he says, will outweigh all the debts, all the hard things that you've been accruing. That's the incredibly bright future we have in Jesus. And fourthly, it's important that we know that God's adopting love is a costly love. It's costly. A few weeks ago, we were in Mark 15, and we looked at this little passage in Mark 15. It's where Jesus is on the cross, and he is about to die on the cross. And he looks up at God the Father, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Now think about all that that is saying in that moment. I mean, we spent a whole sermon on that. But in that moment, what we are seeing is this. This is what it costs God to adopt you. To adopt you, it meant that he had to abandon his son. To make you a son meant that God literally had to slay and slaughter as his wrath comes crashing down on his own son's head. He had to slay and slaughter his own son to make you a son. This is what it's showing us. That for, for us to be people, sons and daughters who are with God, God had to absolutely forsake his beloved son, Jesus. This is the cost of your adoption. This is how much God loves you, that he is willing to let go of his son so he can grab onto you as a son and daughter. This is the cost of God's adoptive love. Now just take a moment to look at the command in John, 1 John 3.1. In 1 John 3.1, the first word says this, see. It can also be translated behold. That you need to look at these things. These things are important. Don't lose sight of these things. Look at it. See it. Behold it. Allow your soul to marinate in these things. They are massively important to you. See, as a Christian, this is one way to think about the Christian life. The Christian life is a long journey of you and I becoming more and more in tune with and aware of all the multifaceted, multifaceted, multidimensional promises and privileges that come along with being sons and daughters of God. This is, this is how the Christian life works. It's you and I becoming more and more alive to, aware of, living by all the promises, all the privileges that we have as sons and daughters of God. This is, this is the Christian life. This is why Packer would say, if you want to test how well a person understands Christianity, you need to, to test how well they understand the doctrine of adoption. If you don't get adoption, if you don't get that your sons and daughters, and there's these beautiful and multifaceted privileges that come along with it, if you don't get that, you don't get Christianity. You're not going to live fruitfully as a Christian. So here's what this means. If we want to live well as a Christian, it means that we have to live in 1 John 3.1, that we have to continually, over and over, day by day, stare at, study, allow our soul to be marinated in, this kind of adopting love. We've got to think about the fact that we are God's children and he is our father. We've got to see that and behold that and pay attention to that. Now that's, that's what we've got to do on that side, but listen to the other side. That means that the greatest risk in your life and my life, listen to this, the greatest risk in your life and in my life is this, that we will veer away from believing that we are sons and daughters of God and will actually begin to live again like we're orphans. That's the greatest risk in your life. It's the greatest risk in my life. The greatest beauty and the greatest hope in our life is that we will actually live in and believe more and more in the deeper parts of our soul that we really are children of God. The greatest danger is that we'll veer away from that and actually begin believing again like we're orphaned. See, it's one thing, we've said this in the, the set of sermons on adoption that we did about a year ago, it's one thing to bring the, the, the child, the orphan, out of the orphanage, but it's another thing to take the orphanage out of a child. 
And although we had been adopted by God, we still had that little orphan mentality in us. We naturally and easily in the flesh revert back to, no, God is not my father. I'm an orphan here. We naturally revert back to that. Now, let me just give you some practical ways this plays out really briefly and really quickly here. I'll just give you a few. This will be on the screen for you. See, when we feel like an orphan, here's what it, here's what it does in our life. This orphan mentality, it makes us feel alone and we lack vital daily intimacy with God. But when we are living like an actual child of God, when we're living like that, we're really believing that, we have a growing assurance that God really is my loving Father. When we're living like an orphan, we are anxious over felt needs. So relationships, money, health. I'm alone and nobody cares. It's what it feels like to live like an orphan. But when we're living like a child, we trust the Father, has a, and we trust the Father, and we have this growing confidence in His loving care. So we're being freed up from worry and anxiety. See, if you're a person that deals with anxiety, know this. All the, all the solutions to your problems with anxiety are found in the fatherhood of God. Really believing that God is a father to you. When we feel like an orphan, we feel condemned. We feel guilty and unworthy before God and others. When we feel like a child, we feel loved and forgiven and totally accepted because of Christ's merit, it really clothes us. When we feel like an orphan, when we're living like an orphan, we're defensive. We can't listen well. We can only handle praise from other people. We cannot handle criticism. But when we're living like a child, we're open to criticism since he or she can uh, consciously stand before, uh, in Christ's perfection and not their own. So we're now open to hear criticism from other people. When we're living like an orphan, we always need to be right. We always need to be safe and we always need to be secure. But when we're living like a child of God, we're able to take risks and even fail. When we're living like an orphan, we tend to be ungrateful. We tend to be complaining, bitter, and gossipy. When we're actually living like a child of God, there is this thankfulness to God in us, and we're able to encourage other people. When we're living like an orphan, we tend to compare ourselves with other people, leading to pride on one side, depression on the other. But when we're a child of God, when we know that, when we're living in that, we stand confidently in Christ. We're not, we're not so prone to compare ourselves to others. When we're living like an orphan, we, we want to boast about our strengths and accomplishments in fear that others will overlook us. We can't let others overlook us. So let us make sure they know about all that we bring to the table. But when we're living like a child, we boast, but in our weakness, not just in our strength. We find that Jesus is more and more the subject of our conversation. When we're living like an orphan, we're relatively prayerless. We, we, it's always a last resort for us. But when we're living like a child, prayer is a vital part of our day. We look forward to talking to our dad. This is what happens when we're living like a, a child. I think this is a helpful lens for all of us to develop over our life. Like put this lens on. When you're looking at your life and you're looking at your day and you're looking at this moment in your life, ask yourself the question, am I operating like a child of God or am I operating as if I am an orphan? And I think what we'll find a lot in our life is that we operate like we're orphans when God has looked at us and said, no, you're a child. See that, know that, pay attention to that. Marinate your soul in that so you can actually live like you're a child. Now, that's the doctrine. Now we're going to spend the rest of our time on the culture. So the question is, what sort of a culture should that doctrine create? That's the question. What sort of a culture a way of operating as a church family should this doctrine of adoption you know, be producing in us? The answer is in James 1.27. This will be on the screen for you. 
Here's the culture that this doctrine should be producing. James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Here it is. Here's the culture. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, let me just point out this, this term orphan. Let's just do a little bit of work on this particular term. Now, I want you to pay attention to what this means in the Bible and know about what it means in the Bible, what it means in our world right now. So in the Bible, the word orphan is used 40-some-odd times in the Old Testament, a few times in the New Testament, and it generally means a person that has lost both parents. But depending upon the context, it could mean a person who has just lost one parent, a father. could mean that. So just depending on the context, it can mean that variety of things. But it, in general terms, kind of taking one step back from the specific, it means this. It means, and it's indicating a person who is in the most vulnerable position in a society. Like when resources get scarce, these people are the ones that, that lose. They don't have the resources and the protection and security of a good, solid, strong family. This is an orphan in the Bible. That when, you know, oftentimes it's used in this little triad. You've got orphan, widow, and foreigner. You put those three together, and here's what it's describing in the Bible. When you see that little triad, it's describing the vulnerable of the vulnerable. Like when stuff hits the fan, when sin hits the fan in any particular area, these are the people who always get killed first. This is widow. This is orphan. Right? This, is, this is foreigner. Okay, now in the Bible, here's what we see about God. When God describes himself in Psalm 68, 5, here's how he describes himself. As the father to the fatherless. And a few, uh, about a year ago, we went through an exhaustive list of God's perspective of the orphan. And here is the summation of that. God is freight trained serious about orphan care. He is really, really serious about his heart for the orphan. Like when God is describing himself in Psalm 68.5, he describes himself. He discloses this about himself. Here's my heart. I am the father to the fatherless. That's how you can refer to me and know me. This is who I am. This is, this is the things that I care about in the world. Now, in the world right now, according to UNICEF, there are, it's a huge range, somewhere in between 140 and 210 million orphans. I think a good conservative estimate is 150 million children that are orphans right now in the world. That is, listen to this, that is one half the population of the United States of America. That is mind-boggling, isn't it? And because we live in America, we oftentimes don't think America has an orphan problem. That's because you don't like drive around and see orphanages at places. But we've got our own orphan problem. It's funneled through the foster system. So in America right now, there are 500,000 kids, children right now, in our orphan care system, in our foster care system. 130,000 of those right now are currently awaiting adoption. They are ready to be adopted. There's just no one to adopt them right now. 18,000 of those kids will age out of the foster system every year. Roughly one half of those who age out at 18 will not have a GED or a high school diploma. Almost half will be convicted of a violent crime at some point in their life. One in five are, are going to end up homeless at some point in their life. But I just can't hear that stuff without my heart just exploding for that. Now, here's what James 1 is showing us. In light of that, in light of God's heart for the orphan, in light of our adoption, 
And in light of the need around us, this is what James is saying. He is connecting gospel doctrine and gospel culture. That the doctrine of adoption, God's heart for the orphan, it should be producing, among other things in the church family, a culture of orphan care. It should be producing that and doing that in a church family. So when James is going to say this, if you want to know what pure and undefiled religion looks like. Now, we oftentimes use religion in a negative way as a way of saying you're relating to God based on your performance for God. That's not how James is using it here. It would, could also be translated worship. If you want to know what true and authentic worship or true and authentic faith in God looks like, he's saying this, it looks like you're going to catch my heart for the fatherless. You're going to have my heart for the orphan. That's what it's going to do in you. This is what pure and undefiled worship of me looks like. You're going to catch that. You're going to get that. You're going to have that. And I love that word visit. That word visit. So you've got, you know, you're going to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. That word visit has all these redemptive overtones to it. Back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, it says that God heard the, the cry of the affliction of the people of Israel, and he came down and he visited them. Now think about what he's saying there. God didn't just come down and stay at arm's length. God came down, and when he visits, he rolls up his sleeves and gets in the mess of their life with them. They're in a mess, and if you're going to visit them in their mess, it means that you're going to get their mess on you. See, this is what it means to visit. It doesn't mean that we stay at arm's length. See, when we're talking about visiting widows and orphans, it means that if we're going to do that, if we're going to get in like God is saying you should get in, if we're going to get in like God gets in, if we're going to get in like God got in with you when he adopted you, if we're going to get in like that, it means we're going to have to roll up our sleeves, we're going to have to bear burdens that we otherwise wouldn't, uh, you know, carry. It means that you're going to have to get the mess of orphan situations on you. That's what it means to visit them. It means that you can't do that and you can't, you can't help their brokenness without you getting broken too. That's what it means. To visit them means you're going to address their brokenness and their brokenness is also going to break you. So that's what it means to visit them in their affliction. So I think this is a good opportunity for you to evaluate your life. If this is what, there's not very many things in the Bible where it says, if you want to know if you've got the real deal, here's how you test it. If you want to know if you've got authentic worship, authentic faith in Jesus going on, if you want to know that, test it like this. How are you caring, how are you visiting widows and orphans in their affliction? How, how, how are you doing that? And I just can't help but think that for a lot of us in the room, that's like an uppercut, you know? I mean, that's like right in the gut. That hurts, doesn't it? God is saying, this is what it looks like. This is what true, authentic faith, authentic worship, it's what's going to move you toward. Right now, let me just kind of give you the, the statistics of, of right now in our area, how things look. So right now in the state of Texas, there's 16,676 children who are in the foster care system in the state of Texas. There are 3,398 children in foster care in the DFW area. In the state of Texas right now, there are 6,580 children awaiting adoption. Like they are ready and, and waiting somebody to look at them and say, I'm in. I'm doing this. 6,580 in Texas. There's 1,022 right now in the DFW area who are saying, I'm in, but nobody else is in. I'm waiting, but nobody else is there yet. 
Okay, so I think it leads and it begs this question. If, if this is God's heart for the orphan, if we have been adopted and brought into God's family like that, if we've got all of these churches in our area, why in the world, how in the world could there be over 6,000 people in Texas children awaiting adoption right now? How could there be over 1,000 in the DFW area right now awaiting adoption if James 1.27 is true and 1 John 3.1 is true about you? How could that be? If you just do a quick Google search, there's a couple of thousand churches in the DFW area, a couple of thousand. Now, if there's a couple of thousand churches, but yet there are still a thousand children right now awaiting adoption, can we all just kind of get a grip on this? That means that there is something wrong with the culture of our churches. Gospel doctrine somewhere along the way is being held, while at the same time, the culture that that should be producing, it's not there. And what God is saying in James 1.27 is, when I'm looking at churches, and when I'm looking at Christians, here is the culture that I'm looking for, a care of the orphan. That is what I'm looking for in your life, in your church's life. Do you care? Is the culture of orphan care there? You, us, is it there? So here, here's what I want to do. I want to spend the last just couple of minutes that we have together kind of chatting through and talking through this idea of orphan care. And it really comes from, for us in two primary ways. It comes on adoption on one side, and it comes through foster care on the other. So I just want to spend just a, a minute kind of encouraging that. And let me just... Let me preface again that at the end of the day, adoption and orphan care, does not, it's not a result primarily of biology. I can or can't have kids, therefore I'm going to do this. It's primarily an issue of theology. It's gospel doc doctrine. God has adopted us leading to gospel culture. Now we're going to be reflecting and adorning this gospel doctrine in the way that we bring in and care for the orphan. See, it's gospel doctrine leading to this sort of a culture. And in light of that, I, I want to ask every one of the families in our church, we did this about a year ago, and I want to do this again. I want to ask you, in light of God's adoption of you, in light of the, the current need around us, in light of God's heart for the orphan, in light of all of that, I want, I want you to get a moment with your family. I'm going to ask every person in our family to do this, our church family to do this this week, for you to get with your family and, and you to ask this question before God. God, would you have our family be on the front lines of orphan care through adoption or foster care? Would, would you have our family personally, regardless of your age, regardless of whatever, would you have our family personally enter in on that sort of a level? I'm going to ask every family that makes up our church family to ask that question. God, would you have us Enter in like that. Now, here's the truth for any church like ours. And by the way, we are super serious about that question. Super serious about it. We want every, church, every family within our church family to ask that question. But here's the easy thing for a church like ours to do. It's easy for me to get up and preach a sermon on adoption and orphan care to, to ask you to ask that question and to, like, say good luck with that. It's easy to do that. It's a lot harder for us now to create systems and structures that can actually help families once they say, you know what, we feel like God might be calling us toward this. We think God might be doing That's a whole different thing to create now a culture in a church that can help support that in families. Now, welcome to our orphan care team. 
Our orphan care team is set up to do just that. Not just so we can cast good theology up here on a, on a stage, but so that we can practically give the help we need to families who are going to be walking down this road. Now let me just talk about our orphan care team, just a few angles here. Ryan Lofton is the guy who is at the point of this. He's doing a great job with it. And here are the three primary things that our orphan care team does. Number one, they do assessments. They try to help you determine, is God calling you to this right now? Knowing that some of us are going to have a want for it, but we shouldn't right now. There's going to be things in our life that are going to be preventing that. That could be marriage issues. They could be financial issues. They could just be a stage of life issue. Adoption and foster care is a massively important thing, big thing, isn't it? That's a decision that's big enough that needs to be made in good community. So you need to have people walking beside you to help you discern these things. So that's their first thing, to help you assess, is this the right time? Is it now? Is it, you know, what does this look like for us? What are the obstacles in the way for us? So first part is assessment. For those who do assessments with us, it also now opens them up to funding for us. That we want to remove obstacles in the way for families to adopt. We want to remove all the financial obstacles we can. So part of their assessment, part of what they're going to be doing is getting a kind of an idea of where you are financially, what you need. Depending on how you uh, do the, the you know, orphan care thing, there are expensive ways to adopt. There are inexpensive ways to adopt. So depending on the road that you're taking, they're trying to help you navigate that in light of where you are, what you're going to need, and how we can then step in and help. So there's a funding component. And then there's the ongoing care component. That Laura and I are in the throes of this right now. We got our first foster placement a few um, weeks, about a month ago. And it is hard. Oh, my gosh, it's hard. And we have needed ongoing help in ways that I can't even describe. And our orphan care team has done such a great job of walking beside us, helping and giving us the ongoing help that we need. So, so that, that's what they do. Now, let me take a step back and talk about the funding component of this just for a second. Um, we have had some people that have been burdened for this, who have begun to give specifically toward adoption and orphan care, these sort of things, our, our orphan care ministry and that umbrella of things. And they have given very generously toward this to the tune of right now we have almost, a hundred, listen to this, $130,000 designated for orphan care at Stonegate Church. Now, can we just say that's a miracle of God? Yeah, for sure. Okay, now I want you to hear what I'm about to say really, really clearly. I want you to know, we don't know if we're going to have that money forever, if that's going to be ongoing or not. We don't know that, but here's what we're using that for. Here is the, the aim, and this is what that money is there for. It is there to help remove every financial obstacle that could be in the way. It's there to help remove those obstacles to pave the way so that families can adopt, so that families can get down the road of orphan care. We want to remove those obstacles so that families who God is calling and moving in that way can actually do that. And we're serious enough about it, but we've raised money to do that. So for some families, that may mean like a matching gift of $5,000. That could mean like a matching gift of $10,000. It could mean whatever it requires to help a family get down the road of this. We're that serious about this, that we want families to be enabled and helped down that road. So if that's you, we want to help you. We want to know that. We want to be in on that with you. Okay, now in light of that, I want you to take this little card out underneath your seat. You should have one. And um, on the back of this card, it just gives various ways that you can be involved in this. Now, I want you to hear this very clearly. I want you to look at me in the eye here. We know that God is not calling every family in our church 
to adoption or to foster care. But we also know this, that he is calling every person in our church to orphan care. So the question is really, how are you going to be involved? I want you to pray about, is it adoption? Is it foster care? You on the front line? But for some families, it's not going to be it. For some, it's going to be that. But for others, it's not going to be that. And for, for those, you know, that it's not going to be that, we want you to find ways to get involved. This card is a help in this. So we want to know where you are in that. So I, if, if you already know and already have some ideas on that, fill this out this morning. Give this back to us. You can put it in the little offering basket at the end. We would love to know how it is that you want to be involved in this. If you need time to think about this, bring it back next week and put it in the offering basket. But we want to know how it is that you want to be involved and engaged in the care of the orphan. And this card is a way for you to do that. This will go to our orphan care team. They'll follow up with you, bring you in, get you kind of up to date, all of that good stuff. So make sure you take that card and you do something with that. You let us know what it is that that you would like and how it is that you would like to be engaged with that. Now, here's how I want to end our service this morning. I want us to be able to celebrate that when we talk about a gospel culture of orphan care, that we're not just asking for God to establish it. Here's what we're getting to do this morning. We're getting to celebrate the fact that God already has, and we're getting to ask God for more of it. We're getting to celebrate that he already has given us this, and we're getting to ask God for more of it. So we have asked our families that have either adopted or been involved in, in foster care, so they've been in the front lines like that, or they're in the mess of it right now, or the trajectory of their life is heading toward that, we've asked those families to come up on the front of the stage, and we want to, uh, to honor them for just a moment. So for all the guys that would be in that boat, why don't you just come right up here in, in the front. And if you're sitting out there right now, and you're like, they did not know this, but we have adopted, we are heading toward adoption, that sort of a thing, you feel free. We would love to have you come up right up here on the front of the stage too. So if that's you, we might not know about it, and you're sitting here, and that could be you. So we, we would love for you to, to come on up. And y'all are probably going to have to scoot this way as just more people file in from over there. So, Okay, so let's just recognize what this is. This is God already establishing a culture of orphan care at Stonegate. That is what these families are. I think we've got somewhere around the neighborhood of about 30 families right now at Stonegate that are in the throes of this on a frontline sort of a way. That is unbelievable. That is incredibly grace, you know, grace from God visiting our church family to enable that and to do that. So I want you to have a sense as a church family Man, God has visited us. God has been doing stuff that's absolutely unbelievable at our church to create this at our church family already. And here's what we're asking God for, more of this, amen? That this culture that's already been created would just grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow at our church. Now, to all the families that are up here, I just want to say a couple of things to you so you can kind of look up this way just for a second. Um, I personally know at this point how hard this can be. And I want you to know just a couple of things. When I think about you, um, I think when God thinks about you, that I would want you to know. One is that I think you are the biblical definition of greatness. I think when the Bible thinks about the word greatness, it thinks about people who are doing exactly what you're doing. 
And, you know, I, I have often had the thought um, just over the last month when it's just been really stinking hard of, man, what will I be thinking in a million years from now? And you know what I think I'll be thinking in a million years from now? That as difficult as all of that was, I think it was a beautiful expression of the heart of God. I think that's what you'll be thinking. And, and I know for some of you it has been a painful road. I know for some of you it has had agony and heartbreak all in it and around it. You know, it's been all of that. Man, I just want to encourage you with a million years from right now, I think you're going to look at that, and there's going to be such honor heaped on you for what you have done in terms of orphan care. So I want to say thank you that we as a church family want to honor you. Man, we want to applaud you. We want to call this what it is, biblical greatness. So in light of that, I want to just give them a round of applause as a church family. Okay, you can have a seat there where you are. And I'm going to ask Ryan Lofton, who's the point of our orphan care team, he's going to pray over you guys, and then y'all can find your way back, okay? So why don't y'all pray with us? Father, I am just so overwhelmed by the, just the move that you've already started with the, with the families here, God, that you have, uh, you've given them a desire. Um, some of them are in the throes of this, um, and Father, that... Uh, God, that you would just strengthen their marriages. God, that you would uh, give them perseverance, that you would strengthen them when they were weary. Uh, Father, uh, I just pray just over them, over hearts, um, God, that they just continue to pursue um, after you um, and all that they need. Father, I pray for us as a church body, God, that we would come around these families um, and love them and help them and encourage them on down the road. God, that we would be there when it does get wearisome. Um, God, that we would be um, a community that would come around each one of these families um, to help them, uh, to encourage them, and to love them well. Father, I pray for Stonegate body. God, that we would see just more hearts stirred for the call for the orphan and the call to adopt and the call to care. Um, God, that you would, you would move in that, that you would make a great culture around here for the orphan. Oh, Father, we, we pray for these families, and we just pray for your just continuing move, and Father, for you just continuing to, to get in front of these people and get in front of these families to make them ask the question of, God, how do you want me to be involved with, with the call for the orphan? As as I have been adopted for those who are in Christ, God, that you would, you would take that adoption and it, that it would move them to pursue um, others, God, that, um, that it wouldn't just be the knowledge that you came down and you, you rescued us from this orphanage, that you rescued us as orphans, that you set your affection on us and adopted us into your family forever. God, that that, I pray that in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.